Hello, listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, I am in conversation with Dr. Anwar Uhuru, an assistant professor of English in the Department of English at Monmouth University. Welcome to the show, Professor. Oh, thank you for having me. It's good to be, glad to be here. Sure. And, you know, thank you so much for agreeing to enter into conversation with me about being Black in the professoriate, teaching while Black. <laughs> we are just going to freestyle this conversation. And uh, but let's start with some introductions. Uh, I'm sure most of our listeners, regular listeners, know who I am as uh, the regular host of the show. But tell us a little bit about yourself, research interest in teaching. Uh, well, I am an assistant prof at Monmouth University. My area is African diaspora literature and culture. And with that, I look at not just the U.S., but also the Caribbean and Central America and the continent of Africa as my kind of base of um, analysis and intellectual thought. And I look not just at race, but also the intersections of gender, sexuality, and class. And I am also... Uh, gathering research for my manuscript, The Insurrection's Case for Reparations. And I look at uh, the valuing of bodies through that project. And it is contracted through SUNY Press, so State University of New York Press. And uh, so my courses uh, tend to reflect around those uh, bigger projects. And it has its challenges <laughs> on a lot of days, but it's also uh, rewarding work. So I know uh, I want us to also talk about your your use of this term insurrectionist mm -hmm. just because I've seen it on your Twitter handle uh -huh. and just how you, you know, we could talk about it in your own research, but just how you use the term to refer to yourself. But I want us to start, um, you know, I titled this show Freestyling Black in the Professoriate. Mm -hmm. And so it is just an open conversation that we are having about our own experiences as uh, Black identified professors and, um, you know, maybe our first teaching experiences uh, down to the present. Mm. But I do want to know, I want you, I want us to also talk about this term uh, insurrectionist sure. as you use it and, uh, and apply it to yourself, but in your work a little bit too. Tell us about it, Professor. Okay, so I've been teaching in higher ed for ooh, about 12, close to 13 years now. And I've had the opportunity to teach at almost every type of uh, university system. So from the public state school, community colleges, private colleges, uh, private colleges with religious affiliation. So I've been able to have a great sample and experience of students and colleagues from various walks of life. And the number one thing I notice is people from underrepresented groups always have to kind of buffer what they say before they say it because of the probability of being 
attacked from people with uh, positions of privilege. And so every time a person from an underrepresented uh, identity and experience speaks, it's already a disruption and it is treated as if they are attacking a system of power or ideology. So that's my opinion of what insurrection is. Of course, that does not take away from what has happened in uh, our country in the last few months. That too is a form of insurrection, but I would argue it's more of a form of a coup than an insurrection because an insurrection really works to dismantle power as opposed to reiterate a system of hegemony. So I argue that uh, the use of insurrection is incorrect. It has always been a positionality and ideology for marginalized groups of people. Insurrection on the basis of people who've always had power is just simply a coup or uh, a form of imperialism, if you will. So that's my opinion on how insurrection works and my view of insurrection. And I've been in conversations with scholars and they too were going to use a term for their work, but now they're um, rethinking their use of the term. And I'm like, well, I'm not because I want to push what I've been pushing and I won't allow white supremacist capitalist movements to deter from the, the mission, so to speak. Yeah, it makes me think about our, our good friend, uh, David Ford, and when he talks about uh, ally uh, versus having an accomplice, mm-hmm. it just makes me think about that term and how, you know, folks are trying to co-opt the A and LGBTQIA mm-hmm. and trying to use it as ally. Yeah. <laughs> and how words get, e- I think that's what you're getting to is how words get easily used, abused, co-opted. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, I love, you know, when he always says that, you know, I want an accomplice. Yes. You know, not an ally. You know, I want somebody who's going to do the work and be intentional yeah. about the work that they do. So I'm walking through, you know, ivory towers mm-hmm. in our black bodies. I want us to get into this conversation in our own experience. I mean, my own experience, I've taught in Newark, New Jersey for several years at Essex County Community College. I think one of my first teaching positions also was in um, Bergen County Community College. I've taught at uh, a great deal at community college before I started to teach at four-year schools, but uh, all around New Jersey. And I've also done online for Southern New Hampshire University. So I think I've had a lot of different um, experiences in higher education. I was also in AmeriCorps. I also taught, that was my first, I thought it was real job anyway, (laughs) (laughs) out of after I uh, graduated from my undergraduate. But so I've taught in, you know, places that are incredibly diverse, like Essex County College in uh, Newark. And where the students are very vocal, they're very active. They're very activist and um, great classroom experience. I mean, I always used to kid around about the fact that I used to be in the classroom and I was always moving around because my students were so lively in terms of their um, willingness to conversate with me about anything. I taught world history there for you know several years, U.S. history and world history. So having that experience in a 
more affirming space where in there were, you know, my supervisor there was African-American, uh, Mike Nash, who's, you know, studies Islam in uh, Newark. So in that space, you know, teaching while Black was very comfortable because there were so many different, you know, ethnic groups in our department and in the campus as a whole sitting in the heart of Newark, you know, on University Avenue. So I just um, recall having, you know, so many different um, perspectives within the classroom and being comfortable and in a an affirming space. At that time, that was, you know, several years ago. They also had an Africana studies department. And many of the students from Essex uh, routinely went over to uh, Rutgers University, Newark. Clint Price was there at the time. So that was an affirming space for me uh, at a community college. I also taught at Brookdale Community College for a short time as well. And of course, you know, while working on my MA degree and trying to, you know, get secured a doctoral degree, I began to move away from more diverse spaces to predominantly white institutions uh, like Monmouth University. And then when you look at my teaching career as a whole, I primarily have spent it in terms of years of teaching um, at places like Monmouth and primarily at Monmouth University. Now, in a global online class of Southern New Hampshire University, they have students from all over the world. So there again, although it's online, in a lot of ways, it's an affirming space for me. But I think what I've experienced greatly over the course of my career is the microaggressions that go unseen, but do violence nonetheless. And I think what happens is many people fail to understand that definition. You know, microaggressions are the everyday, subtle, intentional, and oftentimes unintentional as a textbook definition anyway. Interactions or behaviors that communicate, you know, the sort of bias um, towards historically marginalized, marginalized groups. And so the subtleties of racism, um, the unconscious bias, um, the sometimes um, intentional and offensive uh, microaggressions is, is sort of what has made these spaces at times, you know, uncomfortable. So, Professor, tell us your teaching history. Tell us a little bit about your uh, experience. Yeah, as you were talking, I was kind of replaying my CV in my head, um, not just places, but also moments and experiences. And there's this covert backhandedness that happens teaching while Black, and, and you mentioned it about, uh, one, it's the affirmation of space and place. So we tend to get that in uh, community colleges as well as uh, colleges and universities that have lower budgets and quote-unquote open enrollment. And I've had the opportunity to teach for a few years through the CUNY system, City University of New York system. And I've taught at uh, Community College uh, Kingsboro, and then I've taught at City Tech, which was originally chartered as a two-year uh, institution, and then it got a four-year um, charter. And so most of the students at two-year universities or colleges, as well as uh, more open enrollment spaces, those students tend to be 
on the associate degree track or uh, certificate track. So they're uh, going to enter the quote-unquote practitioner workspace, not more so the theoretical works uh, fields, which will end up, they end up in education or possibly graduate school or law school, et cetera. So there is that mentality. And, and a lot of it is because of the way they were socialized, i.e. in most black and brown households, you go to school to get a job immediately upon graduation or while in school. So there is that push for fields of that nature. So there is that type of mindset until they enter our classes where they're like, oh, wait a minute, we are producers of knowledge too, not these white, uh, canonical, often male uh, figureheads. And so our classrooms tend to uh, have these students because they're often general ed requirements. So there's that experience. And like you, I've felt so seen and full in those spaces. And uh, no matter how much sleep or f- exhaustion you have entering the room, you feel like you just had a Red Bull <laughs> within mm-hmm. 15 minutes of class, right? And so you don't mind teaching till 8.30 at night or uh, 9, 10 in the morning because you're going to get your food that you didn't realize how much you need it. Um, but the irony is at those institutions, even though they're often minority or working class serving, uh, the bulk of the tenure track professors or full appointed people are often white of, or in a different class structure. And so uh, I would walk into cla- campus in a building and oftentimes be assumed to be janitorial staff or, some, or, or a student. And they would say, think that's a compliment when in fact that's actually a, um, an insult. And they'd be like, oh, well, that's because you look young. And I'm like, Whatever. And and then, of course, whenever I would voice those uh, moments, people would ask the infamous question, well, what were you wearing? And I'm like, stereotypical professorial clothing. And I would often have books in my arm. And no offense to students, but you know, that's not the average student. They rarely carry books. <laughs> so, um, Truth. right. You know, and that's, that's not an offense. That's just how it is. And same thing when you're in high school, you, you know, just carry a notebook and a pencil at most. Um, so there would be those things. And even times when I would be walking near campus, cause I would just run and go get a cup of coffee or whatever, or even at Monmouth and being, uh, assumed to be some quote unquote urban youth and would have, uh, references and even, um, racist things said at me. And again, I would say it and people's like, Oh, what were you wearing? I'm like, the outfit I have on now, which is like slacks, a nice shoe and a button up and sometimes a blazer. And they're like, oh, and I'm like, what? You thought I was wearing a hoodie and like Timberlands and baggy jeans, which if I were, who cares? Right. Um, so, so those things would happen. And even colleagues of mine who were uh, either gendered female or of color would kind of talk down to me like, oh, well, you young people. And I'm like, what? Whatever. So it, it's even that um, intra uh, microaggressions that we take on or uh, while you're in school, like, oh, well, you know, you get to read this stuff. We don't. And it's like you have more luxury than I do because I'm teaching four and five classes a semester, writing a dissertation and a conference paper. 
<laughs> and I make like a sixth of what you make. And my insurance is kind of shady right now because of my working class status. So I say all that to say um, these things carry over uh, while you're pursuing your degree. And sometimes for, well, for me, I can't say for everyone, it was the fuel to really take a more uh, assertive, radical praxis and ideology in my scholarship and just the way I carried myself because I could see the mechanisms of trying to mold you into this neoliberal uh, egalitarian Black person, which is often what happens when people pursue um, PhDs. And it is also reflexive of the schools they attend. So if you go to these uh, 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 affluent research one, borderline Ivy or Ivy League schools, they're molding you into a type of person that is often the catalyst to uh, marginalize and keep people in their place. And you see how these people interact with students of color, working class students, they grade them harsher, they uh, belittle them, and so on and so forth. And they uh, don't even think or contemplate mentoring these students because of uh, they want to be gatekeepers. And so I've seen that happen. And even interacting with friends and colleagues who were at these schools and just the way that they would be so flippant uh, about teaching at these um, underserved, underrepresented uh, institutions and minority serving institutions, or, oh, I would never teach at a, a community college or that school, Ugh. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and you see that carry over uh, when you enter it. Another thing, too, that I experienced, and I know this is not uncommon for uh, students of color or even women uh, students who are in graduate school, is a lack of mentorship and support during the pursuit of the PhD and in the crucial moments of being on the job market, too. Um, They won't look at your, help you with your materials, you know, cover letters, CVs, et cetera. Sometimes letters of rec are way uh, below par compared to your white counterparts, um, not realizing that you have to kind of save a little money and, and work with someone who's a bit of a professional in that to help you really spruce up your job materials. And a lot of it is you think, oh, because I didn't attend said university, and it's not necessarily true. It's just that you didn't have the mentorship and guidance. Right. Um, right. And also uh, people not using their connections to kind of help you at least um, get an interview or be a contender as opposed to your your counterparts. And, and, and that mythos of like, oh, we don't hire our own. And that's not true. You just don't fit the script of who they want to mm-hmm. hire. So, yes. so, so all of those things carry over and that sense of if we do hire you, you should be so grateful to be at the table. So please don't say mm-hmm. anything. So yes. all of those experiences are why I uh, probably use the term insurrectionist. It, it doesn't just come from what I've read. It's also what I've lived and what I see right. um, in the amount of conversations, even at the adjunct level that we have with our um underrepresented students that they don't have with other professors because they feel safe with you. Um, And the amount of letters of rec you're act to write, even though you shouldn't at the adjunct uh, writing dissertation level. 
but um, they feel that you'll fight for them in ways that their uh, privileged professors won't. There's a level of trust. Yeah. And I, you know, I've seen, I don't know if that's the right word. So the co-optation of students mm-hmm. and, you know, folks telling people not to take your class mm-hmm. and just the ridiculousness of um, life in the university. And it just made me think of the James Baldwin quote, um, you know, whatever white people do not know about Negroes uh, reveals precisely and inex- inexorably uh, what they do not know about themselves. Mm-hmm. It just makes me think of um, Baldwin, channeling Baldwin a lot lately. I think a lot, uh, you know, we all have. But I want to go back to this character that I like to refer to that you just described. I refer to as the bourgeois Negro mm-hmm. intellectual. This person who goes in the university system for graduate level training and comes out with a I always, this is my term for this exact person that you just described. The comportment is different once they come out in, into a particular space and get their job. Comportment is different. Even the voice, the affect, the voice, the embodiment changes. I'm serious. It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Any person comes out. Yeah. And, it, and, it, it, and like you said, if you're a certain, some type of way, you get the job for a reason. And it has to do with comportment and um, all of those other uh, things. I think that's part of this whole larger conversation about being Black and uh, Black in a professoriate. I, I want to also go back a minute to something else you said, uh, being mistaken for the help mm-hmm. that happened to me. Mm. I, I'm telling you, it happened. So I started teaching my first um, classes like I said, mostly in community college. I was 26 years old. I looked a lot younger. So I tried to dress up like the professor, mm-hmm. just like you said, my, my my sweater. I had my sweater on. Everybody got their professor sweater. Mm-hmm. I had mine. I was like, okay, I got to dress. Sir. I, I want to look a little older at least. So don't mistake me as a student, you know, in my early 20s. And, but I've walked into the classroom with books in my hand. Sometimes, you know, my teacher bag and my, um, sweater on and ready to go and um, the students are whispering is that the professor or I've had people ask me to take out the trash Mm -hmm. more than once in those early years of teaching now I've been teaching where I am long enough for students to know who I am because I just been have been there for so long enough for them to know better you know in in at least in within my own discipline, because I teach across the curriculum. So obviously, you know, when I'm teaching perspectives or courses outside my own department, um, there might be students who never had me before. Uh, and but yeah, sure, I was I've been mistaken many times for the, the cleanup woman. But I'm going to also argue that the erasure that happens in meetings. Um, whether they be school wide or, you know, department level, the erasure that happens. It's one of the reasons why I've never liked going to faculty meetings that like the level of disappearance, like you're absorbed and you disappear in that space, now, especially at a place that just doesn't have a lot of black faculty. So, the you know, the erasure, the feeling of erasure in those spaces. 
um, are, it's just, um, you know, so devastating sometimes. It's, I, you know, can't think of another word or better word. But um, I think like you, I, I like to use the term subversive, um, maybe comparable to your insurrectionist mm-hmm. phrase. I like to, I think the work of subversion has to um, take place in a certain way. And um, I think of myself that way because I think I come from a family's tradition that's tied to um, this idea of, of um, not only the Black freedom tradition, but also there are ways um, to get things done. And you don't want to become that bourgeois Negro intellectual <laughs> with the, uh, you know, the voice, the comportment, the, who's controlled by the institution. You know, ultimately, because then it's how are you going to get to liberation, right? If you become that um, shell of a self, if if we can um, use that sort of phrase, but yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It it be you become the cleanup person with nice clothes and better. Uh, articulation at most but you are used often as the person to clean up um uh, their mess so to speak but also you serve as a police too um you mentioned that erasure in meetings that is so true and uh, the kitchen table talk that uh i know uh people of color in the academy and women too um and other uh underrepresented groups are taught to not say anything while you're on the tenure track or a lecturer position or visiting or postdoc or whatever, because you don't want to come across as being too big for your quote unquote britches. So you just sit there and look alert and attentive, but not utter a word. And also too, because you're often the only person of color in your department and a handful in your uh, school or college. So you don't want to stand out more than you already do. Exactly. But at the same time, you're ingesting that type of harm and also the problematic things that may be said or stated during departments or uh, school-wide meetings or college. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and also, too, um, the ways in which your colleagues don't police it. They just allow it, especially the infamous exactly. uh, angry white male <laughs> that, mm-hmm. uh, that talks over and talks about uh, things that really have no relevance. And then when they call themselves being quote unquote woke or inclusive, they get it so wrong and they've uh, filibustered the meeting as opposed to Mm-hmm. allowing Preach. us to focus on things that really matter. So um, those are things you um, encounter. And so, of course, you leave those meetings exhausted. <laughs> yes, Lord. I'm not even religious, you but know, I'm and, 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 Testify. Yeah, and, and heaven forbid you have to still go teach. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, then you got to, like, turn it off and then put on this uh, performance, so to speak, just so you don't uh, make your students feel as though they're the problem, because they're not. And then, uh, heaven forbid, you have to teach something that's already emotionally 
and psychologically draining. Um, mm-hmm. Teaching what I teach, you, you know, if you have one of those meetings and you have to go teach Harriet Jacobs or <laughs> um, a slave narrative or Du Bois or someone like that, you're like, oh, why can't I just have a, a week where I'm talking about unicorns or something? <laughs> Um, you know, or, or if you're lucky and the meeting is concludes your day, you just run home and pour a glass of wine <laughs> in order to just decompress or play some, um, music that f- fuels you or you call up a friend and just, uh, talk it out. But yeah, it, it's, it's those things of, um, disappearing in space. And the other thing too, I've been having conversations about is your physical body you're trying so hard to not make it bigger than what it is, especially for me, I'm, I'm six two ish. And so I automatically stand out and I have my hair past my shoulders and it's locked. So those are things where it automatically reads a presence of, um, quote unquote blackness, <laughs> but also, uh, boldness, even when I'm not, or the comment I've been told often is, my goodness, I didn't realize you were so tall until I stood next to you as if like you're palatable. So, um, so, so all of those things are, uh, very much what we take inside of us. And then if we teach younger people than we are, uh, who are all and, and black or brown and, and happy and proud, uh, the ways in which they get policed just by a glance or a look or security comes from out of nowhere. The guy you described at the meeting, the imperious white male. That's, yeah. that's, that's usually the, the guy, the unwoke, imperious uh, white male. White, whiteness, like you have on your um, Twitter, uh, your Twitter image, uh, whiteness is exhausting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Even when a white body is not present, that presence is still there in some capacity. Um, yeah. Like it, a haunting. Yes, it is. It is. It is a hate, if you will. <laughs> oh my God. Especially if you're, I mean, that's why I think so many uh, black professors, you know, teaching from home and what that means. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean the same thing it means to you and I. Right. I mean, this is like, well, hey, I don't have to walk through Mm-hmm. You know, those phantoms all day. Yeah. You know, if you will. Yeah. Because it's exhausting to always have to defend your being and to defend your ideas yeah. and to. And like you said, obviously, this is not, you know, pre tenure versus post tenure. It, it, the idea that, you well, you should really shouldn't say anything until post tenure. I would say that's something that scholars um, of all races, ethnicities face, wherein it's not at the level, right, of, um, I think, the same level in many ways when when race enters the frame and blackness. But I do think that junior professors um, are commonly sort of told, well, you know, you can't say anything or you have to agree with the chair or you have to agree with the tenured people in your department because, you know, this could come back to, you know, bite you when you come up for tenure. And so, you know, those are real conversations I think junior professors are having. But, you know, at the same time, um, I, as a black woman, I have to be very careful in a space in which there are no, no other black women in the room 
in the department, in the school, in the history of the school, like, you know, less than in a number you can count on one hand, but because it's too easy to weaponize the black, the angry black woman trope against me. Not only the angry black woman trope, but the crazy black woman trope that I've also written about. I mean, when you're faced with, you know, a dozen or so faculty in one room and you're the only black woman in that room, that thing can turn on a dime. And it and it and I've seen it like swiftly. And then you shrink into yourself and you read the room and you realize and you say to yourself, I have to be careful here because it's a matter of life or death in the sense, even if it's um, a sense of thinking about your heart racing or your anxiety level or just being able to get up out of the chair and walk out of the room, you know, you but but you're easily framed when you're only the only one in the room and you have a dozen of people who are looking at you. I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? You know, and I don't agree with you because I didn't see it. And I have no idea. So and then there's nobody to turn to either, either right? Mm-hmm. There's nobody to turn to either because it's just, okay, they are making me feel like I'm crazy because I just expressed something or said something. I mean, pro- folks will turn on you. So junior scholars have to be careful. I, I definitely um, agree with you that there's, there's that. And that's why I go back to subversion, subversion, the work of subversion and how to function as a subversive, mm-hmm. being black in the academy. It's all about subversion, which is a play for me on um, tricksterism in some ways, mm-hmm. right? And playing the trickster. And you tell people, you tell that one white person that you talk to everything that you want them to know. Why is that, professor? Tell me why we might do that. Why would we have maybe one one, it's always one mm-hmm. that we tell exactly what we want them to know so they can go back and tell the others because we know they are. You feel me, Professor? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> well, we know because uh, they constantly tell on themselves and yes. mm-hmm. overtly or covertly. So we do it. And of course, we'll say it as the ultimate test to prove what we already know, but also to let it be known that we're not just idly lying there, just taking on the mess of what's been spewed. And so I know of people who are now uh, either associate or full professor saying, uh, yeah, I, I made sure to say it in front of blank person because I knew not only would they react to it, but they'd make sure everyone else knew how they felt and how I responded to them. Uh, Because the infamous phrase that is often said in predominantly white departments and spaces is, I had no idea. I didn't know this was going on. Mind you, they're the main architects of projecting this behavior. So you kind of wanted to go on the record, so to speak, that you're not just uh, some happy-go-lucky, quote-unquote, minstrel-type Black person that you are actually uh, 
pissed and probably keeping very uh, accurate notes and records of the experiences you're having at the institution. Of course, there is always one uh, somewhat accomplished you have in the department too, and they also let you know that they aren't for it either, but their hands are quite tied because they're the, in the minority uh, of your department or college or whatever. So you do have that dualism, and that's the person you can literally have very candid conversations with because they've uh, been vulnerable with you too. But yeah, mm-hmm. we, we have that um, whistleblower, so to speak, and don't realize that they're actually shooting themselves in the foot when you say exactly. what you say. Exactly. They have no idea. They have no yeah. idea that they're actually yeah. doing what you need them to do. They're, they're carrying a message that you know they're carrying. Yeah. But you're telling them exactly what you want them to know. Right. And, and Because you want them to carry it. Right. And you they're also telling the on themselves as to how much they... Uh, actively play in your oppression so exactly yeah yeah that's the trickster yeah that's that's the trickster yep (laughs) signifying monkey absolutely read it read it white people yeah yeah (laughs) and then (laughs) i can't freestyling professor this is freestyling yeah (laughs) (laughs) this is unscripted audience yeah But it is, it's, you know, you have these conversations with um, others who are in the academy who are Black. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it makes me think about Donaldson Scott Holloway's book, is his book about um, looking at race in the 20th century. And he looks at stories about race that African-Americans tell mm-hmm. and he, and they, these stories get written down. It was sort of like the black readers digest of the day mm-hmm. and um, Jim Crow wisdom, memory and identity and black America since 1940. And he uses that, that blues concept, the changing same. And he says, it's the same story, different contexts different space and place, but it's the same story about race they tell. And some of these stories get written down, obviously, he's intellectual historian, and he traces them from 1940 down to the present. The stories that his father told him, his grandfather told his father, and um, he looks at um, individuals like Zora, Zora Neale Hurston, and her experiences with race that get written into this Black Reader's Digest. And, and so we could sit down and talk to one another in affirming spaces and say, that's just how I function too, mm-hmm. to survive the academy and avoid becoming that, right, bourgeois mm-hmm. Negro intellectual that you run into at conferences sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah, he uses the changing same and it's the same story, but you know exactly who's going to run back and tell mm-hmm. tell the story. Because they need to know that they don't pissed you off. Mm-hmm. But that is a part and part characteristic of being, I mean, it's subterfuge, right? And, you know, the trickster uh, mentality or the trickster identity, I guess. But we tell the same stories, though. We sit down and we tell the same stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um it, what is it? Uh, 
hundred or so years now since Du Bois hits the scene and so many hundreds of known and unknown people. And it, like you said, it's still the same story of having to uh, function in a, in a sea of dysfunction that is the Academy, regardless of who you are. It is a mythic world. It is not a real world. Right. Um, w- so, and then I'd add on all of your experiential differences on top of that, you realize how much of a construct this world is, even before a pandemic. And now that we're in still the, the throes of it, people realize just how much of a construct this world is and how much people are clamoring to maintain that mythic notion as opposed to imagine a better, more equitable space. And of course, people are hiding behind capitalism in order to reiterate and reinforce this uh, monster, so to speak. It makes no sense for an institution to cost $100,000 a year for a bachelor's degree, for I example. Know. Yeah. And, and, that, and, and even professional uh, MD, PhD, JDs, it still shouldn't be that much. Um, and then you have a, a so-called uh, administration that's supposed to be more for the people and arguing why uh reducing or expunging student loans is a bad thing and it's like uh we shouldn't have it in the first place right um let alone public health uh concerns with uh vaccines and just access to health care so but but you see that this is um a multi centuries old project that is just being repurposed in the digital age we're in so it is uh, same old, same old in a lot of ways. It's just fancier, glossier terms to address the same thing. One thing I want to say to junior scholars who might be find themselves listening to our conversations today is your ideas. Protect your ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like a, a simple thing. And you might say, of course, I check, protect my ideas. But I'm saying protect the ideas that you speak into existence mm-hmm. in spaces that are predominantly white. Yeah. Protect your programs, protect your conferences, mm-hmm. protect your writing, mm-hmm. copyright it. Mm-hmm. Because as a junior scholar, for one thing, right, if you come to the table and say, well, I think we should we should do this. It's far too easy for maybe a tenure track or a tenured scholar who's looking for a promotion to take your idea and run with it and they, because they know they can. Oh, yes. Right. You're supposed to be the quiet junior scholar and they know this, but protect your ideas. If it's a conference idea, you know, get a copyright on it. Mm-hmm. Get a copyright on it. Um, certainly continue to talk about it with other people, but it's, into, it's, it's your intellectual property. Mm-hmm. So if it's a podcast show, it's your intellectual property and your idea. So, Put it under copyright. You can have those conversations with people you trust and you know that you can work with, but you definitely want to do that because just as easy as it is to make you shrink in a room, it's it's just as easy for your ideas to be co-opted and stolen. Couldn't agree with you more. You'd be surprised how easy people are clamoring to take your intellectual property. I mean, it could be as simple as a lesson plan that you use in your classrooms or um, intellectual ideas in which a professor will accuse you of uh, gaslighting or it being under uh, research. And then you look a semester later and it becomes a course that they're teaching from something you've done. And obviously I'm speaking from experience, 
let alone, like you said, conference papers or terms that you may use. And uh, we know everybody has a sense of somewhat of an imposter syndrome. And it's not even necessarily yours that is internalized. It's the one that's projected onto you. But I would definitely completely agree with you that you protect your intellectual property as best you can and um, only discuss your ideas with a very select few of people because you'd be surprised how easily people pirate your um, intellectual property, um, especially when you're from an underrepresented group. And even when they know it's your idea, it's still easily co-opted because, again, you're only one person. You're only two people, mm-hmm. you know, and especially if it's been successful. Right. You know, it's even more so coveted. Right. And um, and this is where I get back to the microaggression, mm-hmm. um, wherein people know you're outnumbered. Mm-hmm. We know it's your idea. We don't care. Yeah. We will stomp all over you to take it from you. And so. That's, you know, copyright at first and then discuss into more thorough detail with others after the fact so that you have a record, you know, of your work on file. You know it. And then the co-optation becomes a little more difficult because then it becomes a matter of your intellectual property that's been copywritten and protected. But that's the same for sharing, you know, things that you want to publish in journals. Mm -hmm. You'll be very careful about sharing, you know, digital copies of your work, mm-hmm. you know, protect it. And uh, another Baldwin quote, I think this is Baldwin, professor, help me out here. <laughs> the universe has devised no um, terms for black genius. Yes. Yeah. Baldwin, That's yeah. Really what he says. Yeah. And so it's it's in the in the folks, like you said, who live in this mythic world, they call an ivory tower with the imposter or the imposter or not, right? Um, what um, that looks like for everybody might vary, but it's because, you know, the universe has devised no terms for Black genius. And in this mythic world of whiteness that people have bought into um, called the Ivory Tower. Professor, thank you so much for joining me in this uh, freestyle conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I just, uh, I really enjoyed our, our time. We got to do this again. Yeah. Unscripted. Yes. Yeah. No, sometimes we just have to speak from the heart. <laughs> sure. Sure.